The information and themes discussed in this podcast are of a sensitive nature. If you or anyone you know requires support, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Money Mind, expanding your mind when it comes to money matters. Here's your host, Tanya Carlson from Amplify Wealth Management. Hello, everybody. I'm very excited about today's guest. He's uh, a good client, friend, um, and wonderful community member, Leon Fernandez. Leon is an artist, adventurer, uh, and podcast producer with a fascinating background in community development, social justice, and activism. He's been a tour leader in Cambodia, worked with drug users in India, made paintings in the Sahara Desert in Morocco, and done silent meditation in Thailand. He's worked with people people who inject drugs, prisoners, queer communities and other populations living on the fringe. Personally, Leon has also experienced life as a fringe dweller and has experienced some of the most exuberant joys and deepest darknesses. Currently, he works as a peer worker in suicide prevention, as well as producing a podcast about mental illness from a lived experience perspective. Leon is passionate about opening up authentic conversations about mental illness, madness, and suicide. He's also completing his master's in health communications. Welcome to the show, Leon. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for uh, agreeing. Um, it's, it's always the hardest part, I think. Um, I start by asking everybody two questions. And the first is, can you tell us a little bit about your cultural background and upbringing? Wow, what a cool question. My cultural background, I um, identify as coffee-coloured. <laughs> so, so what that means is I've got a father from India and a mother, a, a white Australian mother, first fleeter. And so uh, ethnically, I'm kind of a mongrel dog. I'm a, I'm a <laughs> hybrid Indian-Australian. My cultural background, though, to sort of elaborate, is I identify as someone in Newtown. I am an inner Westie of Sydney. And so that comes with whatever identity it comes with. Um, <laughs> but that's the best I've got. I'm a coffee-coloured inner Westie. <laughs> Love it. Very interesting description, actually. <laughs> the second question I ask is, is just kind of a quick one, really, and we're going to probably to and fro a little bit with this um, at some stage, but would you consider yourself a spender, saver or an in-betweener? I think most accurately I'm an in-betweener. Yeah. Good. Interesting. Yeah. I guess... What I want to do is touch on a few things today because you're a very diverse person and there's lots of things to dive into, but I'd like to start with your art, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, you're self-taught, so tell me, how did that sort of come about? Is it just a talent you developed or where, where did that come from? Well, it's a, it's a funny one because I never, I, I never remember a time I didn't paint. Um, and what made me call myself an artist, I was actually 30, I think, and I've, been, I've just always made paintings and I've always done it. And it got to the point when I was 30 that I lived in a small room in an attic in Newtown and I just went on this painting frenzy and I painted so many paintings I couldn't fit into the bed. <laughs> and that's when friends said, Leon, you're an artist. And I said, <laughs> I hated the term. It felt like a wank to me. That's so funny. <laughs> but but what they did say is, look, you... you um." what about just hiring a gallery and putting a show? You need to get rid of these. I thought, oh, that sounds good enough. So I started exhibiting these works and they um, 
people really like them. So it's something I've always done. And and my impetus to sell art was to get space so I could get into bed. Really. Sleep. <laughs> yeah. So it was um it went pretty well, I guess, you know. Well, the, the journey still continues. So I, I guess it does. Yeah. yeah. And you've got a little studio. And I, I know um through through talking to you over the years that that's therapy for you as as well as a hobby or an interest yeah. or a passion. It's Absolutely. it's a number of things, isn't it? Do you think that's the same for a lot of artists? So my answer is probably that's true for most artists. Uh, for every artist I know, it comes from a very deep drive that's quite inexplicable. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's inexplicable. It would be easier to, it would be almost easier to not walk than to not paint. Wow. Okay. It's weird. Yeah. Um, but for some artists I know, it is a nine to five job where they create paintings and artworks and sell them. And that's fine too. Of know? course, yeah, there's yeah. No, no wrong or right on, on, on this world we live in, I guess. But it's interesting, isn't it, that for you it would be um, something like a disability if you couldn't oh. do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. that's fascinating. I certainly didn't get that gene, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Can't even draw a stick figure. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I guess art is, is many different things to many different people as well. Yeah, it's kind of a blessing and I won't say it's a curse, but it's sometimes I wish, and I've said it before, if I had that yearning to do coding, then I'd be really <laughs> rich or I, I don't know if it, if, it, uh, if it created the same source of joy, but that ain't my path. No, it's not dream, at all, so not at isn't. all. I think um, it, it, it doesn't sound anywhere near as sexy either, does it? Oh, I'm passionate about coding. Um, mind <laughs> you, I'll, I'll have to get a coder on the show and let's let's hear what they've got to say for themselves. You, <laughs> have, to, you have to get a coder on the show. Yes, I'll, <laughs> I, I don't know any, but uh, if you're listening coders, please get in touch. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, well, let's, I mean, I think we'll, we'll probably keep coming back to art because I think in a way it's something that's, you know, a constant in your life and, and it's yeah. going to touch on a few areas. But um, let's have a chat about your work in community development and, and activism, um, yeah. you know, which is really about bringing about social change is, yes. is really what that's about. Would you like to share a bit about the areas that you're, you've campaigned for or, or are passionate about at the moment? Yeah. So I have worked a long time most of my work has related to drug use and mm-hmm. injecting drug use. Yeah. Um, that certainly came from personal experience, yeah. but it also came from just a knowledge of injustice and how mm-hmm. absurd things can be, how absurd, from my perspective, drug laws are. Yeah. And I guess from an early age, I thought, maybe from my own personal experience too as, as a queer, that people don't necessarily need to change to fit into society. Society needs to change to accommodate more people, more types of people, more flavours of people. And that to me is the sort of basis for what I think of social justice. Okay. A broadening of the boundaries, would you yeah, say? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. a broadening of opportunities. We, we don't all have the same opportunities. We know that. We don't. And so social justice or um, social change is about that changing society to accommodate more colours of the rainbow, more paint colours, you know? Yeah. And would would you say that what might hamper the broadening of of boundaries might be legal implications? I I, I know 
that you know there's always debate and, and this is global debate around legalizing certain drugs and, yeah. and so on do you think that the law inhibits a lot of our actual beliefs or, or, or... oh yeah mm, interesting absolutely so with drugs as one case of point the drugs that were most damaging to one's body were illegal tobacco and alcohol would be illegal yes very and interesting. some of the illicit drugs yeah even heroin and opiates mm-hmm. um, are much healthier for, for the body in the right dose. Laws can create stigma. The difference between a boat person, a refugee, an immigrant, they're significant. And laws do create stigma. Laws create inequality. Tax laws can make some people wealthier and some people not. Medicare laws, health laws, Centrelink laws, welfare laws, all of that sort of stuff uh, can exclude and include people mm-hmm. and can give some an unfair, uh, some advantage and others a disadvantage. I think that's true, um, as you say, in, in all areas. I, I mean, where do you draw the line in the sand? Is, is there a way to do that that considers people's diverse needs uh, or, or ways of life as well as protecting vulnerable people who, who may take things too far i'm not just talking about Mm. drugs but but anything Mm. really totally there would be an answer to that and it would be (laughs) complex and it would be ever evolving and Mm. i think the answer would be found in philosophers and political scientists and scientists i think that if you base laws on values and principles rather than um what's good for the economy which is also a value mm-hmm. you know if you if you base laws around that it's more possible so a value-based system yeah it yeah. makes sense i guess i think we've we've probably got a long way to go i think everybody would understand that many laws are outdated and and, yeah. and were created for for centuries ago that that possibly don't meet today's needs but the complexity of changing them are, are literally that complex and and with that, I mean, we have to also acknowledge that many laws are working. Many yeah, many laws are right. really well designed to be really boring. I think work, workplace health and safety laws are actually really well designed. Yeah. I think laws around seat belts are, are yes. really well designed. Yeah. I think there's a lot of good laws. So I, I um, though I'm an activist and though I think a lot of things should change, I don't want to say everything's bad. We're not. Absolutely. Yeah, it, the, yeah, the world is catastrophic for some, mm-hmm. um, but it's not for others. And in Australia, many laws are fine and fair. Many yeah. are not, but it's it's not that everything is is bad. Mm, definitely true. I think um, probably we're, we're in Sydney lockdown, right? You know, lockdown mark two right now. And, mm. and I guess um, people feel grateful to be in Australia in lockdown, mm. but also frustrated by by things like lockdown, etc. Yeah. Um, actually, let's 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 talk about that because one of the things that um, I guess you raised uh, was it last year that you went on Q and A? Yeah, the yeah. ABC. Yeah. yeah. So last year um, you asked a question on on Q and A, and that was um, I think what are the positive lessons from from twenty twenty and and how can we embed them in society? And and yeah. the answers weren't quite answers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as is as is often the case and I guess yeah. that is complex but but the fact that we're in lockdown 2.0 now well first of all tell us how you responded to lockdown one and yep. how you've responded in lockdown two 
I couldn't be more astonished by my response to lockdown one and now two. Mm-hmm. So I have a potential tendency to go into, you know, intoxication and severe mental illness. Yes. And as lockdown one was announced and emerged, I thought, oh, this is not looking good. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I mean, I'm a, a quite the extrovert. So it just seemed terrifying. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that I knew that I had to put my well-being as my number one priority in my life. Well-being yep. is number one. I had to go exercising. I had to stop taking drugs and drinking, yes. um, which became easy because pubs closed. So that wasn't actually <laughs> that hard. Um, and I had to be attentive to that. Um, I lost my job. I had yeah. no income. Sorry, I had JobKeeper. I did have an income. So what I made of that situation was I can go to my art studio and spend time there. I've never been financially poorer, never. But strangely, and I do hesitate to say this because I know how hard it's been for some people, it became the best year of my adult life. Yeah, wow. Isn't that incredible? Absolutely. And I, I still think it's such a paradox. Me of all people. Yes. (laughs) every person I knew including myself was expecting a train wreck yes it's true yes and 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 it's it is I mean it's always surprising when I guess the opposite happens but I guess to to put that in perspective for our listeners um you have bipolar Mm -hmm. and you you told me when I first met you that you have the good bipolar which I also think is fascinating because I didn't (laughs) At the time, know that there was any any other type of bipolar, but yeah. um, you know, I think it, it's it's a label um, yeah. in itself that can terrify people. Yeah. Are you happy to share a little bit about that? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I kind of take back the idea of it being the good bipolar now. <laughs> okay. Well, so just to give an explanation, the the bipolar as defined by psychiatrists is bipolar type one and bipolar type two. Bipolar type one is the one that people write movies about the jump off the mm-hmm. roof and the belief that you're a god or the you know things like that um bipolar you want to be a god now you want to be that one <laughs> swings it around about because okay. <laughs> that, that that's a very debilitating type of bipolar yes. people tend not to be able to get work or things like that yeah. bipolar type two has very much less highs but the lows seem lower and it's actually got the highest suicide rate of any mental illness. Wow. So the darks are really dark. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had a different, interesting journey on that. So I got diagnosed about 12 years ago and I, I take the meds and all those sorts of things. And more recently, I take the diagnosis as a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So I no longer say I've got bipolar. I say I've got a diagnosis of bipolar. Ah, so I, 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 somewhat challenge the prognosis okay but I don't challenge the treatment I do all the good things I take my meds I do all of that stuff I exercise and pay attention to my well-being and I also have a more kind of complex understanding of my own emotions and processes Mm. so what was very difficult three years ago is not so hard now and again I can thank actually lockdown for that yes solitude provided a lot of introspection time. Do you think it's time to get to know yourself? Is that something that you've found really 
valuable because you can't sort of bury it or, or hide behind anything else. It's just you in a room and, yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, again, I say this gently, knowing that people are having a hard time, but many yes. of my friends, they're being paid to work 40 hours a week and, frankly, they're getting their work done in two days a week. <laughs> and for me... This is a once in a century opportunity. Yeah. You've got time, you've got space, you've got a computer. Think of the things you wanted to do when you were seven yeah. and start doing them. You wanted to learn about forensic chemistry, you can do it. It's free, yes. it's online. Yeah. Um, this is that time. Now, parents with young kids, you are absolutely yeah, excused absolutely. from looking yes. still of your tree. <laughs> you can complain <laughs> and you meet you deserve compassion. 100 percent But there's a lot of friends of mine who will hate me for saying this, but yeah. are, are missing out on a really valuable opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's something I took up. So I, I learned solitude. I love solitude. I actually have a feeling I flipped and now I'm actually a gregarious introvert. <laughs> yes, and I call myself an introverted extrovert, which is, you know, I think um, it depends on my mood, to be honest, yeah. <laughs> to which one I'm going to be that day um, based on, on, you know, I don't know, whichever way I wake up. So totally. it's interesting. Yeah. Totally. It's, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it, I, I really consider this a really, rare opportunity mm. it's truly a rare opportunity and if you can it would be great to take it yeah absolutely mm. absolutely like you say it's not for everybody but if you've got that opportunity so yeah. do you think that that's the positive lesson for people to take forward not in 2020 anymore and, and possibly not 2021 um but but into the future do you think that's something that will come good from COVID that people are finding ways to look in. I hope there's a lot of valuable lessons in lockdown. One is a different view of public health, uh, a different view of how to approach public health, uh, how vaccination programs can work, how social messaging, how health communication work. That's all something that's, that's possible. I hope we just don't go back to what we were. Many aspects of society are good, but we've co-created a society that makes Donald Trump a good idea as a president in some countries. Yeah. What we've co-created isn't that good. Yeah. And I wonder, this is me wondering, I wonder if people did manage to spend a little more time just thinking about what they could do. I just read yesterday, it's, it's better to die with good memories than with good dreams. You Fair know? Yeah, um, that's right. And sometimes I wonder if if that's that's something you can change. Uh, I think we've all learnt that when we left to our own devices to do work at home, we're all actually quite adult. We are all capable of working from home. The office and social environment is also really beneficial too. So there's, it turns out I think that we're actually adults. Mm. <laughs> that's something that I I learnt and, and relished in too. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I think, um, well, let's hope so anyway. <laughs> it might, yeah. be too, might be too early to tell. Um, at the moment, uh, maybe not right at the moment, but recently you have been producing a, a wonderful new podcast um, and it's called It's a Mindfield. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you, you know, I guess I, I listened to your first episode and I'm still halfway through the second one, but mm. 
In that first episode, you talked about discrimination and stigma on mm. mental illness, and, and I feel that, um, gee, we, we, we still have miles to go in that area. Mm. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts as someone who would say that they have a mental health illness, mm. possibly? Maybe you wouldn't say that, but um, mm. you, you're involved in that field from a work perspective as well as mm. personally. It's so interesting. So I think the fear of the crazy has diminished a little. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's less obvious than that. Yes. What stigma looks like. Sometimes we can be vulnerabilised, uh, people who've got a mental health diagnosis or lived experience of distress. Sometimes when our distress has been pathologised and we're told we've got a chemical imbalance especially, um, mm people can accuse us of making decisions based on bad brain chemicals and that's often not the case <laughs> oftentimes people's decisions around it when mentally ill when being told they're mentally ill including when they're thinking about suicide are actually based on a lot more reason than people will give them credit for sometimes we're considered right. unable to make our own medical decisions sometimes we're hospitalized involuntarily which does have its detriments and it can have its benefits for some too. The, sometimes it's there's an assumption that pills will make it better. And mm. one of the hardest things is that we know that good mental well-being requires some, some work, ideally a mixture of psychology, maybe medication, maybe lifestyle, maybe a whole lot of things, welfare, access to healthcare, access to... Um, social security and things like that so our system's just not our system has a lot of improvements that need to be made i i did start listening and i'm sorry to say i can't remember if it was in in podcast one or two where you uh or your colleague was interviewing three young people and they all had very different tangents on what maybe they're looking back what their treatment might have been yeah. or what didn't didn't help and i i found that really fascinating but but also such a an obvious sort of uh, pointer towards the fact that young people do process things differently and mm. at different times and at different maturity levels. Um, mm. But I, I wonder if that's also something that's evident as a, someone's mental health issues evolve, mm. whether a sort of a, a maturity adds to the way that they can see their treatment options maybe more clearly or, or potentially mm. even talk about that or, or research the right people to help them. Is that your experience? Yeah, it's it can be such a perplexing time. So youth in itself in Australia involves usually puberty, a school certificate or an HSC, you know, finishing high school, trying to work out your sex, falling in love, yeah. your relationship with drugs, all those fabulous and terrifying yes, things. milestones, yes. Yeah, totally. It's a really hard time. Now, for some people, one example being psychosis. So for a, a proportion, often of young men, but of men and women, will hear voices that other people don't hear, mm -hmm. oftentimes once or twice and never again. And sometimes when they disclose that to others, they are read as, or they were caught, they're called schizophrenic, they're given medication, they're given a label that sticks. The word yeah. schizophrenia does not wash off anyone. Yeah. It's very hard to de-diagnose someone. 
uh, very hard indeed. So mm. that's one thing that can happen. Psych drugs really, really help some people, but they really, really don't others. They're not the yeah. most sophisticated drugs. We've got some really clever drugs, antifungals, uh, antivirals, yeah, antibiotics. Right. There's some really cleverly designed drugs. A lot of psych drugs, especially bipolar drugs, interestingly, there's only one drug that's been produced specifically for bipolar, and that's lithium. The rest of them are, are actually epilepsy drugs right. that seem to work good enough for bipolar and seem yeah. to have an effect. So there's no drug that's been specifically designed for bipolar. It feels like we're getting soggy seconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, this will so, do. Have this one. Yeah. yeah and, and a lot of mm. antipsychotics people report having really bad side effects. Some people it saves their lives. I never want to discount mm. that reality. For other people, there's uh, weight gain, there's a zombie-like feeling, there's a lack of emotions, there's slow thoughts. Um, so, so these can be debilitating for people as well. Yeah, that's true. Mm. And, it's, and I guess, yeah, it's, it's a matter of experimenting, I would imagine, is how it's going to affect you. It's sometimes we sort of say, you know, you, you need to seek treatment, you need to see a psychologist, and that's all fine and good. Where's a 19-year-old on Centrelink going to find 180 bucks a week? Yeah, that's the issue, isn't it? That, that's really... totally the issue, you know. And, mm. and so what's I could afford a psychologist the first time when I was 31. That's when I could afford a yeah. psychologist, uh, you know. Where can we afford that stuff? Mm, yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge to the system. Yeah. We'll probably come back to this a little bit because I, I guess it'll touch on a few things, but... You, you work as a peer worker in, in mm. suicide prevention um, mm. and, and yeah, this is quite a sensitive topic for people and I guess what, what's one thing going on in this area that you think would be helpful for people to know because it's, mm. I, I know um, having, I, I have teenage sons and that age category so I have friends who have um, children, not just uh, boys but uh, girls and boys going through some dark days and, mm. uh, you know, we understand adolescence is, is a very challenging time mm. in and of itself. And I know that they've often talked about the fact that nobody seems to know where to go. You know, your doctor, mm. if you can get in, might go and say, okay, you need to see a psychologist and then you might have to wait eight weeks to get in to see someone reputable. And sometimes eight weeks is just far too long when a family is in crisis. Tell us a little bit, I guess, about the work that you're doing now and whether there are improvements on where this is going? Mm, that's a really good question. Obviously, talking about suicide is one of my passions. The answer is not uncomplicated. So uh, in, in the last few decades, there's been a bigger push to employ people with a lived experience of mental illness, suicide, etc., to be workers, and they, mm -hmm. they call us peer workers. But as we know, 40% of the population has experienced mental illness and, and distress. The difference between us and them is we're allowed to say it at work. Yeah. <laughs> we're allowed to disclose and it's kind of our job to disclose. So that's yeah, what a, a peer worker is very specifically required to do that. So it does take some uh, fluency with your own issues and a, a familiarity and a desire to actually use those issues. So suicide's incredibly important to talk about. And one thing I say is the only thing more triggering than talking about suicide is not talking about suicide. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the, the one experience that I have heard time and time again, and this was my experience, 
every encounter with the mental health system, with GPs, with psychiatrists, with psychologists, even with friends, the one question that was never asked was, why do you want to kill yourself? So people will say, I've been having thoughts. Do you have the things you need? Do you have the, um, have you got a plan? How's your moods been? Has your exercise been? How's... So the, it asks, people ask about the existence of the thoughts to analyse the risk. But the actual question of why do you want to kill yourself, the hard part about asking that question is actually receiving the answer. Well, I guess so, yeah. And, and the answer can be really hard. Some people have gone through a drought and lost four years of income. Some people have a debilitating, uh, live in debilitating chronic pain, physical or otherwise, where treatments haven't worked and they've tried for decades. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons and a lot of the answers are, shit, I've got nothing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know where you can go, but I, I can lend you ear and for me, the first person who asked me that and actually listened to the answer at, at, at a very appropriate length was actually when I was scheduled in a, in a psych ward and yeah. the psychiatrist said, so why do you want to kill yourself, you know, and listen to the answer. And it's hard to sit with this, but there's a lot of people who, are, who have really good points. There's a really good, you know, the people think about suicide. It's just a form of problem solving. It's a Mm. form of extreme and it's a solution that is permanent for them. But oftentimes there's a lack of understanding or actual knowledge of what alternatives are. So to actually ask a person is really powerfully useful. To be able to sit with the answer is really important too. So it's not an easy conversation to have. No. Part of what it requires is to be able to sit with doubt, a complete lack of confidence, a fear that you'll get something wrong. Mm. But one thing I can promise you, based on my experience and based on the experience of many people who have survived suicide attempts, is it's better to ask uncomfortably with a shaking voice than to not. I think from a fear point of view, a lot of people think, well, I don't want to say something that that triggers the person to to actually go and do it. So there's a fear of, you know, I don't want to be the one that's actually where you've thought, that's it, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> never, um, in the, never in the history of the universe has yeah. anyone put the idea in anyone's mind. If okay. anyone's been down and dark, trust me, that's somewhere on the in their vision yeah. and asking if they've thought about killing themselves is not going to make them go, actually, <laughs> now that now you're, you're talking it, about it, yeah, what a great idea. Right. Yeah. yeah, so okay. it's, it's never happened. Is there some wrong things to ask somebody who, who may have attempted to take their own life or, or if you're in a the fortunate position to be talking to somebody who is in deep distress and you are asking those sorts of questions, are there equally some things that you shouldn't say yeah. um, that, that might just make them feel misunderstood? Or Yeah, there's a few obvious ones. The first one is, have you thought about how this is going to affect your mum, your brother, your sister, your kids? Obviously it's going to be devastating and it will ruin people's yeah. lives. That's true. Now, if you say to someone who's having thoughts that they are a burden and they are actually damaging people around them, 
the answer to have you thought about how this will affect your mum is, yeah, I have. I've thought about it thoroughly and this is a really good plan. I am being noble and I am being kind by killing myself. Mm -hmm. So keep in mind someone has often thought about this stuff. The other problem with that question is someone who maybe doesn't feel as much of a burden uh, might start thinking, oh, you know, I feel enough shame. I might add that to my shame, Bo, too. I'm so selfish I'm not even thinking enough about my mum, my brother. I'm that right. selfish that I deserve to die. And okay. I know so many people for, for which that's been the truth. Either feeling like a burden or being made to feel extra guilt. We mostly know how damaging it will be, but sometimes um, our experience is that we are a burden. They're the biggest ones. The other one that is devastating is that suicide is a selfish act very common sentence isn't it it's a really common mm. sentence and the only people who utter that, that sentence are very privileged yeah. and very lucky to have never lived in chronic or acute pain that's so bad that the idea of ending your life is better than the idea of staying alive so when I hear that I just hear someone who's very privileged and good luck to them and also someone who's actually a bit selfish. This is how you will affect me as opposed to how are you going, you know. So that statement itself is is a voice of a privileged, selfish person. Well, I think it's really important to talk about these things more because I think the more we um, talk about them in society, the more it does destigmatize yeah. the the issue and, and hopefully allow people to have the confidence and courage to to go and have a conversation with someone who who might be mentally unwell and, and mm. maybe that conversation leads to other conversations and other conversations and that starts to be part of their recovery for want of a better word it's probably not quite the right word I guess I'd like to lead our conversation um, across a little bit uh, to the opposite end of the world (laughs) and and talk about um, money which is which is obviously in my world and I think what what I wanted to get your perspective of and and I'm thinking of an exact time actually but um, is maybe how money affects people with mental illness do you think it's a trigger yes uh for some so uh, and the example i gave earlier is that in a lot of uh, rural new south wales they have specific workers called uh, suicide prevention drought workers so people who do suicide prevention relating to drought so drought doesn't affect people's moods it affects people's incomes primarily yeah so there is a relationship between um mental i'm not i'm going to call it mental distress and money mm-hmm. undoubtedly not having somewhere stable and secure after retirement can cause great distress there's a line in the sand called homelessness once someone's become homeless the everything is kind of multiplied in its difficulty to come back. So employment, uh, housing, things like that, it's much harder to come back once you've crossed that line of homelessness. It's very possible to come back, but that's much harder. So these are examples where, yeah, absolutely money Mm -hmm. has a relationship with well-being. The nice thing is 
Now, I've read statistics on this, and you probably know them more than I do, but my understanding is after a roundabout, I think it's about fifty to 65000 bucks Australian per year, between that and something like $5 million, bucks, there's no significant difference in people's life satisfaction. Yeah. Under 65, 50 grand, whatever it is, there's a high likelihood of being unhappy. And over $5 million, there's a high likelihood of being unhappy. And that's incredibly true, yes. Yeah, sweet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that speaks volumes too. It does, doesn't and it? And it's, it's yeah. a great relief. It's a great yeah. relief too to, to think about it that way. It is actually, and I guess it, it points to a lot of issues and, and we're not going to be able to solve all those problems of the world today, but, you know, thinking of welfare payments and things like that and that they are under-resourced and therefore, I guess, don't help to improve people's situation financially, let alone in their wellness. A, a lovely story, sorry, lovely data <laughs> more than a story is that Lots of people, myself included, but definitely mental health researchers are expecting a spike or an increase in suicides relating to lockdown. Mm-hmm. We were wrong. Yeah. It hasn't happened. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that made it not happen was JobKeeper. Yes, okay. Actually, that's fascinating, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so the, the receipt of JobKeeper, actually, it's been proposed has saved lives. Now, suicide rates still might spike, but there's sure. been no significant increase in suicide that's been measured yet it mm. could happen we've got no uh, job keeper or anything like that yeah but there is a relationship there yeah it is it is um, a really valid point and I'm sure something that um, those in charge of policy will definitely be be looking mm. into as well yeah mm. and and public health too you know mm. in Australia if you you know have a get diagnosed with cancer or something like that it's hard. Yeah. There's a lot of improvements needed, but we'll never have to sell meth like he did in Breaking Bad to pay yeah. for our chemotherapy. You know, that, that doesn't happen. We, so there's some stuff that money, financial, you know, political decisions have made that, that actually increases well-being. Mm. Do you have any personal money tips that you'd like to share? <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm the best person to give it money tips because I've lost a lot of money. But the the way I've lost money is actually through ha- having to deal with chronic illness. You know, as, as you know, with me, I couldn't work for several years. Mm-hmm. I sold uh, properties to afford to live, you know, so I, I've lost much more money recently than I've, that I've gained. But there's one piece of advice someone told me, and I was very hesitant to actually share this advice, but I thought about it and I thought, "Mm, there's an element of truth to that. And that piece of advice is if your primary problem is money, you don't have any major problems. Now, that sounds like it's belittling poverty, and I don't mean it to do that. But after working in suicide prevention, after someone who's tried to kill themselves, after working with what I've seen... Money's a big problem, but there's bigger. There's despair, mm. there's heartbreak, there's chronic devastating pain. So that's a piece of advice that I kind of think resonates. Yeah. 
again, I don't want to belittle poverty. Money is is life or death to a rural Cambodian or to someone living on the breadline in Western Sydney. I, I have no doubt about that. Mm. But for many of us, for many of us, if your primary problem is money, you don't have any major problems. I, I, I would agree, you know, in, in obviously given certain perspectives, like like you mentioned, some people are in, in very difficult situations. I think we are fortunate in Australia. And I think that like everything else we've talked about today, opening up um, education around money, money management, mm-hmm. financial mm. decisions, um, you know, as I like to say, we're not taught about money matters in school, mm. yet everybody will manage money. If you are on the dole mm. and you never work a day in your life, you will have to manage money. Absolutely. So it's not... It's not for the privileged few. It's actually for every single person on this planet. And that starts with education and opening up discussion. And again, just like mental illness, money can be a taboo subject and something that a lot of people shy away from out of fear. And if we can destigmatize money and what it stands for and and not look at it as rich versus poor, but actually as a means to an end and maybe like you mentioned if you're between 65,000 and 5 million you're all in the same bucket if we could yeah. actually embrace that knowledge yeah we'd probably have a little bit more of a, a a spike in the happiness index i think totally. people would appreciate where they are one one of the biggest things i learned from you and this sounds really strange but it took a while but i realized that money was numbers and you need to add the numbers, subtract the numbers. It sounds weird, but (laughs) money symbolises a lot more than numbers. But when you invited me to do my first budget, and I I took ages doing that and it was really worth it, and then I just saw numbers and so it made sense to me if if the annual budget, if the number at the end is positive, that's a good thing. And that number is calculated through calculations to addition multiplication and suddenly the power of a $20 note felt different money's numbers it's um it's many things it symbolizes a lot but it's actually starts with addition and getting familiar with the numbers yeah Yeah. and I, I think you know another point that you just made earlier was that you've you've lost a lot of money but actually from my perspective and working with you, and we worked together for just just under ten years now. Actually, yeah. I worked out the other day, which is a, which is a long time to to work with someone, is that at various times of your life you made very very good decisions with your money yeah. and your investments, yeah. and then that enabled you to fall back on being able to sell something when you couldn't work, and yeah. whilst that felt like a failure because you had to unload that asset, it actually enabled you to survive a lot longer yeah. in, in taking time to heal. And I actually think that that's because you made really, really good decisions and it put you in a position to be able to make other good decisions. You know, totally. last year was really challenging. Um, yeah. There's there's never going to be years where there's no challenges. It just doesn't, yeah. you know, life doesn't work like that. But adapting to what's in front of you, seeking advice from family, friends and, and professionals helps guide you towards some of those decisions. So I actually think that, you know, your your path has probably been much better than, than it may appear from your perspective. 
totally. <laughs> I, I think if it was under your tutelage, I would absolutely be homeless. <laughs> no, no, we never. We, we made a promise to each other in a way that we would yeah. never let that happen. And I and yeah. I don't think that that's even to to my tutelage. I think um, there are thousands of amazing financial advisors out there who care mm. about their clients and and are willing to sit and listen and understand someone's situation and mm. try and make the best of it. And and along the way, I've learned a lot too. I remember one of the times that we were working towards that particular life goal you had at, the, yeah. at that time and and when you know you had one of your um, hospitalizations and you told me that one of the triggers was that you were frightened you wouldn't have enough for retirement and yeah for me there was enormous um at that time guilt around that because I I felt that I'd possibly put a pressure on you that was unnecessary and you know that was where I started to learn about how to change my language to adapt to really being very careful about what that could trigger in somebody um, mm. without quite understanding that I'm confident around money and talk about it all day long, but not everybody else is. So, you know, there's a lot of lessons along the way. I think we probably learned a lot from each other. And I think that that's, again, just part of sharing the journey, being not afraid to, to talk and open up discussions and one step at a time and let's see where it takes us and we all learn together, which is a bit of fun. Totally. Yeah. You know, I never I never realised that, that you felt guilty as a response from that. It's, um, yeah. You, it, you, it's you know, not, it's you know, I think now because we've gone through other cycles together mm. that that it, it was a, just a, a slap across the face to me to be mm. very mindful of not the power that we wield but that words have such mm. weight, you know, and... You, you sometimes don't realise that you get excited for pushing people along the, the financial journey that possibly you might have pushed too hard at one time without being sort of um, understanding of their situation. So that was that was really important to me and, and something that I, I think about a lot now and, and try not to reflect on with guilt um, but more like anything in life, a lesson. I, I learn just as much as everybody else does from my clients and from people's journeys and and what they go through. And I think that's the the kind of cool part about life is just learning yeah. together, you know. It, I absolutely agree, you know. And the, like, Dr. Zeus was right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> life, life can take so many twists and turns that are unanticipated and unanticipatable almost, you know. Some yes. things can surprise us too. Yeah, and words are very powerful. I guess, I mean, I sometimes am mindful of the words I used around drugs and death and suicide, which are yeah. very easy for me to talk about. Very That's easy. right. Yeah. And it, it could be normalising or there I, it, I would never romanticise it. It, it, it. They they could have an effect that I never intended to. Absolutely. You know, yeah. words are yeah. powerful. They definitely are. They definitely mm. are. Leon, where can people find you? How how can they get in touch or follow along? Oh, there's a few ways. So I've got a website, Leon mm-hmm. Fernandes Art, www.leonfernandes.art, Leon Fernandes Art, or my podcast, It's a Minefield, is www.iamf.org.au. Beautiful. 
Well, I hope everybody um, found today's chat really interesting and informative. I certainly did, as I always do when I talk with you. <laughs> and um, I think It's Minefield is just a, a wonderful production and, and I hope it really um, gets out to people and causes that sort of activism that you'd probably like to see from something like that. Totally, totally. I've enjoyed cool. this chat very much. Yeah. Thanks very much for joining us today. <laughs> okay. Have a good one. Okay. See you, Liam. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is for general information only. It contains brief comments not intended to be the basis for decision-making nor to be taken as a substitute for personal advice. Please contact Amplify Wealth Management to discuss any matters that may be relevant to your individual situation. Money Mind. If you have any questions about your financial future, please head to amplifywealth.com.au. Money Mind is available to download and subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.